the Judcast, disappearing under a mass of cables, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Adam Avison, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, and Roy Schmitz. The Judcast, November Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to this, our last show before Jodcast Live. And joining me in the virtual Jodcast studio is everyone else. Hello, guys. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Dave. Hello. So, in the show this month, we'll be putting your questions to Tim O'Brien and finding out what's going to be happening on the 21st of November. But first, before all of that, here's Roy with the last of the interviews from the European Radio Interferometry School in Oxford earlier this year. It is a pleasure for me to talk to Dr. Rick Purley from NRAO. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Oh, very great pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we'd like to talk about the VLA, which is currently undergoing a huge expansion. Uh, first, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the history of the VLA? Sure. Um, well, the VLA is what we call a radio synthesis telescope. Uh, unlike a traditional single antenna, it uh, collects its information uh, in scattered places by moving the antennas around. These data are all conducted electronically to a central processing platform, a large computer, uh, where various multiplications and other manipulations are done. Ultimately, all these data are put into uh, a Fourier transform operation and out pops a map um, at the end of a long story, uh, which uh, replicates with the resolution of the full aperture of the distance between the antennas. This is a technique that was developed in many places, primarily though in England, at the Cambridge facility uh, called radiosynthesis. And uh, it is a, 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 shall we say, a a fascinating uh, operation and a a marvelous capability. When was the VLA constructed? So the VLA was completed in uh, 1980. The construction began in the early 1970s. Uh, It comprises 27 antennas, uh, which are arranged on can be moved by large rail cars on a double-track railroad to uh, one of, well, actually 27 stations at one time out of a total of about, I think it's about 80, uh, which are uh, arranged on three tracks, which radiate in straight lines uh, from the center of the array. Each of the arms is 21 kilometers long, so the maximum spacing uh, distance between any pair of antennas is about 35 kilometers and this gives you a resolution in this imaging synthesis methodology of about one arc second at 21 centimeters. So it's like optical quality resolution, but at radio wavelengths. And to do this, you need an aperture 35 kilometers across. You can't build an antenna that big, so we do it piecewise uh, by pairs of antennas. What were the initial science drivers for building the VLA? Well, you have to go back to the 1970s uh, and look at what was big in those days. Uh, And I would say that uh, the things that the designers, the original designers were thinking of was neutral hydrogen from nearby galaxies. This was a hot topic, rotation curves, mass of galaxies. Uh, Tracers can be done through the investigations of the motion of the 21 centimeter line from hydrogen. But at that time, they did not have sufficient resolution to resolve arms and star-forming regions, etc. So they needed an arc-second resolution instrument able to do that kind of work. That was definitely one of the major drivers. And I would say that the other major driver was trying to resolve the structures of the distant quasars, the radio synchrotron-emitting radio regions from quasars and radio galaxies at uh, what was then considered high redshifts, redshifts of one or two maybe, 
uh, and searching for these structures now known as jets, which were theoretically believed uh, to power these large radio lobes from the central regions. These things were expected to be there. They had not really been securely uh, discovered, although some early work done at Cambridge certainly indicated that these things had to be there. Uh, and so people who were designing and, and science drivers uh, were definitely thinking of this. And the array was marvelously designed for these two pieces of work. The correlator is a perfect match for local hydrogen in nearby galaxies, and the resolutions uh, by the 35-kilometer baselines is well-matched to finding jets in external quasars. So you can see in the design of the array what people were trying to do. And but that was in the 70s, and now we're in a new, a new era now, and the requirements have changed. Yes. Um, so first, I would like to I wonder about the VLA. It's a very versatile experiment. Yeah. Um, so the telescopes are actually movable. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that to co- be conformed to different science drivers? Yes, absolutely. And this, I must say, is although the VLA exceeds in all dimensions, and uh, it was it was an absolutely brilliant piece of engineering driven by brilliant people who, you must also say, had access to sufficient funds to do the job right. Mm-hmm. You, you, you need all of these things in place to come up with the kind of order of magnitude improvements in instrumentation. But what they decided to do, and I was not, I mean, this was before my time, but what they had ultimately decided to do was to build a transformable array, one that is not fixed in position, but could be transformed Um, according to what the science interests were. So we have, with the VLA, four specific standard configurations. There's these 80-odd pads that exist on, uh, out on these planes in which the array is built, uh, and you, can, you could populate them with 27 antennas any way you wanted, but there are four standard setups, which, each of which offer a different regime of resolution. So the most compact, which we label with the unimaginative term D, Uh, a letter D, is uh, a maximum distance between antennas of about one kilometer. And it turns out that when you observe with your 27 antennas all packed together in this manner, you get a lower resolution uh, beam, but you get exquisitely high sensitivity to soft distributed structures, what we call high brightness temperature. If you expand the array to the largest, you lose the capability of looking at soft, fuzzy, diffuse structures but you enhance the capability to look at sharp, bright structures. If you're interested in both fluffy distributed emission and sharp, bright emission all in the same object, then you can observe with more than one configuration and then add the data together. And this technique works really well. So yes, this is a a transformable array uh, which has quite different science objectives between the shortest and the longest uh, configurations. How long does it take to go from one configuration to the next, and how many times mm-hmm. per year do they change this? Yes. So the configurations stay more or less fixed for four months at a time. There are four configurations, A, B, C, and D, A being the largest and D the smallest. Uh, and we go from one to the next one in about a week of time. It takes actually, when you're only moving from, say, the shortest configuration to the next shortest, from D to C, Uh, this can be done in about two days because not all and the antennas move. The way the array is arranged is that essentially every other antenna moves between adjacent configurations. So you might say the odd-numbered antennas are the ones that are moved out when you go from the D to the C. 
now, the, but however, when you think of this, you go from D to C to B to A. What happens when you get to A? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't go backwards, A, B, C, D. You take the antennas in the longest configuration and then move all of them, actually move all but three of them. Between the shortest and the longest configurations, there's only one pad, which is common. So 24 antennas have to be moved between the longest and the shortest, and they move a long, long ways. That one takes a couple of weeks of solid work to get that in. And then following the scheduled move, there's about a week, um, which is to make sure everything works right before you go onto standard configure and into a standard observing mode. So I believe in 2001, uh, mm-hmm. people started with the upgrade for the VLA, the yeah. eVLA. Sure. Um, what was exactly the, the main reason to start this upgrade? Two things, I would say. Well, there's a main reason, and then there's a main capability, uh, you might say. I probably didn't say that quite right. What I mean to say is the science drivers that drove the uh, design of the original array in the 1970s are no longer the primary science drivers in modern astronomy. Things have moved on. People are interested in different things. Thermal emission is a much bigger thing. Star formation, spectral lines, um, complex... um, physics of star-forming regions, protoplanetary nebulae, things of this type, these do not figure. I don't think you even see it in the original uh, documents for driving the design of the VLA. But now it's a much hotter topic. The other thing which is entirely different is the high redshift universe. Looking, say, uh, large surveys for the signatures of early-forming galaxies, These kinds of science requires access to much greater regions of frequency space since you don't know where the spectral lines necessarily are going to add up or or, or show up due to the redshift. The original VLA was a $78 million project, but in the 1970s, which is the technology that they had to use, they could not transport all signals from the antennas to a correlator. You could not build a correlator which would process all those signals even if you could arranged to bring them from the antenna to the central station. So they had to make compromises in the 1970s, and they made very good compromises given the technology of the time. But since 1970 or 1980, there has been, as everybody knows, an amazing change in technical capabilities. Receivers are better. Uh, Digital signal processing has improved by many orders of magnitude. The ability to conduct signals long distances has increased many orders of magnitude. So in the 1980s, and particularly in the 1990s, um, some of us were looking at what could the VLA do if we had access to implement, or the ability to implement, modern wide bandwidth, uh, wide signal processing capabilities. Well, um, the, the answer was enormous great science could be done. The technology was there, the science drivers were there, uh, all we needed was some money. Uh, and that's an old refrain, of course, there's nothing new about that one. Uh, we, t- we first tried in the 1980s to write a proposal to improve the capabilities of the VLA. That was not funded. It was well received, but there was not money. But by the 1990s, you know, as the science drivers continued to expand in terms of the need for more bandwidth, more sensitivity, more spectral coverage, more frequencies, and the technical capabilities to provide those for uh, a very modest cost compared to the cost of building the array, uh, I think we were able to make in the late 1990s uh, an excellent case uh, for a major upgrade. And there was a big difference between 2000 and 1990. 
In the 1980s, when we were preparing this proposal for 1990, it was a limited upgrade. We we're looking to expand bandwidths from tens of megahertz to maybe a couple of gigahertz at most, and a correlator that was a lot better, but not everything. But 10 years later, what I'm arguing is it probably is a good thing we didn't get funded for an upgrade uh-huh. in 1990, because by the 1995 and 98, we recognized that the only viable path, the best path, was not an incremental improvement, but to simply redo all the engineering, all the electronics. The only thing that's being transferred over from old to the new is a few of the high-frequency receivers, which were themselves were upgraded in the 1990s anyway. So it's a complete rewiring uh, of the array. The only thing, um, well, it's not, it, it, I mean, when I say only thing, it sounds like a minimal thing. We are retaining the antennas, the array configuration, and the support staff. These are major components. In fact, they're the most expensive ones. But the things that are new are all on the inside. So it's mostly the, the hardware. Uh, do the receivers themselves change as well? The two of the high-frequency bands are being carried over from old to new uh, because uh, they were already upgraded anyway. So they're new design receivers that cover wide-frequency swaths. All the other frequency bands uh, are being rebuilt with brand-new receivers. Uh, and then there are two frequency bands that are brand new. They had We had no capabilities in those frequency bands. That's 2 to 4 gigahertz and 28 to 40 gigahertz. The VLA could not operate at any fraction of those bands. Uh, we will now have new receivers. Actually, they're both in place now uh, under construction, but some of the antennas are now outfitted, uh, which give complete coverage within those frequency bands. Is it possible to express uh, the improvement from the EVLA, from the VLA to the EVLA in terms of sensitivity? Is there a, uh, that you can say it's this times better? Yes, uh, you can certainly do that. And I have, of course, in the various talks I give, I have a slide that gives all these improvement factors. In terms of sensitivity, it depends what kind of sensitivity you're talking of. Unfortunately, some of these questions don't have easy answers. Uh, in terms of what we call continuum sensitivity, that is, if you have out there an object which has uh, emission which is about the same over over frequency, then you can add up all the frequencies together to get you more sensitivity. Uh, so because the new receivers and the new correlator do uh, are capable of uh, processing all the frequencies within any one given frequency band, we have a huge improvement in sensitivity, particularly the high frequencies, because at the high frequencies, say 40 to 50 gigahertz, where in the past we had to deal with only 50 megahertz of bandwidth, now we get 8 gigahertz of bandwidth. So that's 80 times the bandwidth. And since sensitivity goes with the square root, that's about an order of magnitude improvement in raw continuum sensitivity. On the other hand, if we're talking about line sensitivity, if you're looking for a spectral line, you can't simply add up all the frequencies because they don't contain the line. You're dealing with the bandwidth of the line itself. The EVLA does not offer a lot of improvement in that area because since it's the bandwidth of the line itself, it's a characteristic of the source, not of the instrument. We have better receivers, so there's less receiver noise, so you get factors of a few there. But to do better on lines in general, there's only one way to go, and that's with more collecting area. The VLA, EVLA does not offer more collecting area. So the improvements in line sensitivity are modest, It's an SKA of the future that will go for lines. That is outside our province. On the other hand, um, in the old VLA, the narrow tuning capabilities meant you could only get the lines that happened to be in that 
narrow section, primarily neutrohydrogen. Uh, in the new EVLA, you can combine all the lines that are within any wide bandwidth. So, for example, recombination lines of hydrogen. Within one band, there can be dozens of these things. With the VLA, you had to pick one. With the EVLA, you get all of them. And you, so instead of observing one line, you can get two or three dozen lines. And you can add those together. And in many cases, this is actually a viable operation to improve your sensitivity. So we can do that. So in fact, it is a much faster machine. You're going to do much more science in the same time, basically. Yes, this is, this is absolutely right. It, uh, the VLA has always been a fast machine because as a two-dimensional array, it can make an instantaneous two-dimensional map. This, was, uh, this is a feature not early recognized in, in terms of its importance. Uh, older um, interferometers, one-dimensional interferometers, um, like, the, uh, like the interferometer at Westerbork or at Cambridge, they are one-dimensional, and you have to observe for 12 hours in order to get all the position angles as the Earth turns in, in, in the synthesis method in order to get a full image. The VLA is a two-dimensional interferometer, which means instantaneously you've got the coverage needed with some limitations, uh, to do a map. So that made it fast. It's also fast because it has 27 antennas. Uh, fast in the sense that you can get to your sensitivity goal relatively quickly. Um, now in the future, we still have the same number of antennas and the same array configuration, so we don't change anything in that way. But because of the extra bandwidth, we're faster in that sense because there's more information, much more information, 80 times the information uh, coming in the, uh, compared to the past. And how do you deal with all this extra information? What kind of extra hardware do you have behind that? Uh, well, it's a, it, 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 I guess you've got to say this is a hierarchical business. We've talked uh, so far about receivers, antennas, etc., uh, which offer the capability to tr bring to the central processing area much more information at once. The information is digitized at the antenna uh, and then put down uh, fi uh, optical fiber lines, uh, to travel the up to 21 kilometers uh, on each of the arms to the central processing station. The central processing station is a very large correlator, and a correlator is essentially a large multiplier. This is an enormously fast machine because it has to handle 120 gigabits of data from each of the 27 antennas in real time. Um, it doesn't store anything. It has to eat all the data in real time. This, this is large. It is not the largest in radio astronomy. The Australians are building a system called ASCAP, which has even a larger data rate than this. Uh, but it is, it is large, nonetheless. The correlator is a very large and complex machine. It is being built by the Canadians in their correlator development group, which is located in the southern British Columbia town of Penticton. Uh, they've built many correlators in the past. They're a very skilled, uh, clever group. This is by far their largest correlator. Uh, it is now just um, the design and testing of the correlator has uh, been finished, and they're now building the final unit in Socorro, and testing of this is, uh, is, under, is undergoing. Now, so this thing eats 120 gigabytes of data times 27 antennas. It uh, does all kinds of complex multiplications and Fourier transforms internally, uh, and then out comes a large data rate, which is typically tens of megabytes per second, nothing like 27 times 120 gigabytes, uh, this data rate must be, uh, must be stored in an archive. And the specifics of the archive are not yet completed. We will not be running at 25 megabits per second archive rate initially. Nowhere close to that. 
uh, probably one-tenth of that uh, will be normal. And this can easily be handled in modern uh, simple systems. Ultimately, this machine will run at 200 to maybe 1,000 megabytes per second in extreme situations and never full-time like that. That will be for special experiments. How those data will be archived and perhaps more importantly, how they will be distributed to the users all around the world are issues not yet settled. There are lots of ideas, but we have to watch how the technology develops how other uh, areas, because this is not the only facility in the world that deals with data rates like this. There are many branches of physics, for example, that, that have such things. Uh, and we have to see how, how the technology evolves for this. But it is a problem we have to solve. We, we know that. And for what time do you have to solve it? When should EVLA be completely online? The antenna conversions are nearly all done. The correlator is partially built, but it's only a small fraction, a few percent of it. But by Early next year, early 2010, all boards will be in the correlator and it will potentially be able to run at whatever rate we think we're up to. So uh, early in 2010, we will turn the thing on for science at a limited rate mm -hmm. and in very simple modes until we feel our footing, you might say. And the rate at which we uh, speed these things up is there is a schedule which is a very conservative schedule because we don't want to promise people capabilities that we will not be able to support. Uh, I'm hopeful that we will go faster than that schedule. But the 25 megabyte rate uh, maximum will probably be held for some time, a year or more, until we see just how it is that we need to distribute. I, I should say we're not entering a situation where we have no clue what we're doing. Um, we have all kinds of good ideas about how to process this data, how to calibrate, how to export it. The trick is trying to find the most effective way mm -hmm. and that we, we don't want to just blow our users out of the water with a giant data brick, which they have no way that, to be able to handle. We're, we're, we've got to work in unison with our users. There's no sense building an enormous machine like this that no one can actually use. Uh, and so we're trying to proceed both aggressively and cautiously at the same time. I, I'm not sure how, if I, could, if I was asked to explain what that meant, I'm not sure I could give you a rational explanation, but this is, we're, we're, trying, to, we're, we're trying to work with the users to make this thing work for them. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to seeing the result of that. As we are, as we all are. <laughs> so you're already a very experienced astronomer. Uh, that's what some people claim. <laughs> well, you most certainly sound like uh, you've had quite an experience. Oh, we've been in the business for quite a while now. It's, uh, I've been in Socorro for a long time. I was the first postdoc in Socorro. So when the VLA was being built, it started in the early 1970s. Uh, in 1977, I was finishing my thesis at the University of Maryland. Uh, my thesis was uh, to um, not build but implement a new a low-frequency facility that my thesis advisor, Bill Erickson, had built on a low desert dry lake in Southern California called Clark Lake. This thing, it was about a three-kilometer wide T interferometer, an old-fashioned design that looks like a letter T, had some tens of banks of, uh, of antenna wire grid arrays uh, that we combined and multiplied and things of this type. But my job was to develop a synthesis method for using this uh, and then apply it to looking at low-frequency emission from clusters. The thesis was not, in terms of science, a, a great breakthrough. We ran into all kinds of interesting problems, but it sure taught me a lot about how to manipulate data uh, and how to combine things and do synthesis imaging in a difficult environment. 
this must have attracted the observatory to hire me as a postdoc because at that same year, the VLA was just beginning to come online. The VLA in 1977 is about in the same state uh, in terms of development and bringing its facility into, uh, into operation as the EVLA is now in 2009. So um, this was a wonderful opportunity for me uh, because uh, being, as I like to tell young people now, uh, it's nice to catch a wave moving forward in the surfing sense. Mm-hmm. And the, the rise of the VLA, or, or another pithy little phrase, is a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So to be at the VLA uh, when it was just coming online uh, was a wonderful opportunity because everything we did could not have been done anywhere else before. So we were able to, and I don't mean we, when I say we, it's me and many other people because there were other postdocs there who came shortly after me and many researchers from around the world. It was the place to be. It was a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was in 77. And, uh, well, now it's uh, 2009. So what's that, 32 years later, and we're still there. But, but with a much better instrument in the meantime. Yes. Uh, so the early VLA was a very limited machine, and the uh, correlator was... Uh, and especially the post-processing, was primitive, to give it the best phrase I can think of. And it, and it caused enormous stress because the computing was nowhere up to the data rate. Horrible decisions had to be made about limiting data, uh, and we didn't know how to calibrate it. Uh, we could barely make any images out of it. Uh, by today's standards, uh, uh, everything was crude, but the reward was worth it. And so it was long, hard hours at times, and you're always looking furtively in other direction to see who else was using up the computer around you uh, because the situation was, was, was quite limited. That, of course, um, with the revolution of bringing in um, desktop machines changed all of that. And so the rise in capable, uh, capabilities of um, signal processing that comes with these things, better software, much better machines. Nobody worries about getting enough cycles anymore for VLA data. But of course, with the EVLA, since we're increasing data rates by two to three orders of magnitude, we're very quickly going to be back just where we were in 77, <laughs> at least for a while, until, until we can catch up. Yes. But I think we know a lot more now than we did then. We didn't really know how to calibrate. We didn't really know how to image. Uh, there was uh, much discussion on the best way to do things. We're having the same discussions these days, but the knowledge base on which we are standing is much faster and much more solid uh, than it was then. So I'm very confident we will much more quickly bring this thing up. So were you always interested in astronomy? Uh, well, no. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, I'm an observer by nature, and all my life I love observing, observing everything, anything, and particularly weather. Uh, since I was raised in northern British Columbia and northwestern British Columbia, where weather is rugged and hard, mm-hmm. uh, I've always had a huge fascination in these things. And I had always thought in my own mind as I completed my undergraduate work at University of British Columbia that I would go into meteorology. And I had applied to meteorology schools uh, in an eastern, let's just call it an eastern university, and had been accepted. But uh, there was a small hiccup in that I was waiting to hear if I would get a, a government fellowship. Because the Canadian government at that time, and I presume I still do this, were offering very attractive free, uh, not I don't mean free in the sense it didn't cost anything, it was it was scholarships that gave you great flexibility and you would not be dependent upon any advisor or university for funding. And this was very attractive. So I was waiting to get word on whether I would win one. 
while I was waiting, I got a nasty uh, letter, what I considered a nasty letter from the university and the individual who had accepted me, uh, basically saying something, we haven't heard from you and therefore we are uh, canceling your offer. And um, But that, that's almost the same day I received word that I had indeed won this nice government scholarship. And so I was able to write a similarly what I thought anyway in my mind at that time when I was young and foolish, letter back to the individual, essentially telling him where he could take his money. And uh, I decided that I, instead of going to meteorology at this unnamed Eastern University, I would stay at the University of British Columbia, sign up with a new faculty member named Bill Shooter, who had just come in to establish a radio astronomy program. I had had a radio astronomy summer job at the Algonquin Observatory for the National Research Council in 1967, and, and that really dates me. But, and that was fun. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and so with a radio astronomy faculty member uh, who was looking for graduate students, and I had the money, and my parents lived there, and I could stay with them and live cheaply, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's how I got into astronomy. Yeah. It was uh, sort of a last-minute uh, decision. That's very good. Uh, are you still interested in the weather? Do you still oh. do some work on that? Oh, I'm a, I'm a fanatic about weather. You never leave these ancient loves behind. And uh, I'm one of these tens of thousands of people who have a weather station whose weather information is uploaded every five minutes to the W Underground weather site. So mm -hmm. if, you, uh, if you go to your wunderground.com website and you type in Socorro's zip code, in the upper left box, 87801, um, you will get the Socorro weather forecast. If you scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see there's a number of personal weather stations listed links, and the, and the one called Calle de Lago is mine. So you can instantaneously see the, what the weather is on in my backyard anywhere in the world. This is <laughs> an amusing service. And as soon as I got my personal weather station, four people in my building also got personal weather stations, even though they only live a few hundred yards from me. <laughs> uh, some of us are just incorrigible when it comes to uh, this sort of issue. But at least there's a lot of redundancy in the information then. Well, it's actually interestingly different. Uh, one guy who lives only 500 meters away from me, but about 100 feet higher, uh, you, you watch his weather station, which is the same as mine. So, I mean, these are well calibrated. These are very good instruments. And you will see in the daytime, his temperatures are the same. But at nighttime on calm nights, as you would expect, he's two or three degrees warmer. Just, just, just from radiational cooling, ground cooling. I'm lower, he's higher, and you can see the difference every day. Uh, every day it's not windy, that isn't clear. Which in Socorro, New Mexico, it's clear almost every night. So. Well, we'll put a link to that on the show notes. Well, this is pretty ordinary data. And, and as I said, uh, there are at least thousands, if not tens of thousands of people like me who have these personal weather stations. This wunderground.com, I don't know whose, whose idea this is, but it, uh, it is a very useful service. If you want to know what the weather is someplace that you're going to, uh, you, you can uh, go to uh, any town in the world Type in the name of the city and, the, and its location, and uh, it will show you the local weather stations. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this interview. It was really great. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to speak on these matters. Thanks, Roy. Now, as we have been plugging for the last goodness knows how many months, Jodcast Live is almost upon us. And hopefully on the 21st, we'll be seeing about 50 of you lucky listeners joining us at the Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire. Yes, it's going to be very exciting. We Just before recording this episode of the Jodcast, we had a, a slight rehearsal. Not very much of a rehearsal, really. It was a very long rehearsal. We've been here for decades. Yes. Yeah. Like. 
I think about two hours now. It's mainly trying to figure out how to plug everything in so that we can record it all. But we do have a fantastic pantomime for all of you with plenty of audience participation. Oh, oh no, no, we don't. don't. Oh yes, we do. But we will have a, a jam-packed afternoon. We'll be recording the December edition of the Jodcast and probably parts of the December extra show as well. And before that, the people who have tickets for the Jodcast Live will be taking them on a tour around the observatory. Then we'll be recording the Jodcast. There will also be tea, coffee, and indeed biscuits. And hopefully cake. Rash promises there. I know. I think Dave just volunteered to make cake for next week. No, no, no. I thought Jen was going to be making the cake. She said she's going to make a cake, a, a giant big level telescope cake. That was theoretical. I'll, I'll, uh, make, I'll no, make a Jodcast cake and I'll just hold it up to the webcam. And then, <laughs> eat, and then you'll eat it while it you guys record the show. <laughs> Even though in Jodcast Live you will see all, well, most of your favourite presenters in the same room at the same time, joining us from Australia will be Megan. And you've got some news for us now about a meteor shower. Yes, um, November is the time of year when we see the Leonid meteor shower. Um, it's a bit variable, some years it's good, some years it's not so good, and the predictions are looking like this year could actually be quite a good one. Um, the prediction for the peak of the shower is there could be more than 100 per hour at the peak, um, so it is worth going out and having a look at it. What are the observing conditions like from Australia? Oh, from Australia, we might see them coming over the horizon. Um, Leo's not best placed, and the peak for us is going to be really early in the morning, sort of not far before sunrise, so not very well placed for us, but... Over Europe, it's going to be pretty good. The peak is actually scheduled to be around half past eight Greenwich Mean Time on the 17th. And the moon is uh, will just pass new, so there won't be any moonlight to cause problems either. So the only thing you'll have to worry about is clouds. So how do we decide whether a year is going to be a good shower or not? Is it simply to do with the moon, or is there another factor that goes in there? No, is there's a lot of theoretical modelling that goes on behind it. There's quite a few um, astronomers who actually spend their time modelling these things. So they look at the orbital paths of the comets that cause the meteor showers, and they look at the, the streams that they think were left behind by the comet, and they try and model them to see where the, the thickest parts of the stream are. And it's when we pass through those thick parts, that's when we see the most meteors. And they think this year we're actually heading for quite a thick part of the stream. Is this a stream that's been around for a long time then, or has it been since the last Leonid meteor shower? Uh, this stream's been around for a while. The last um, closest passage of this particular comet, which is 55P Temple Tuttle, um, the last closest approach of this to the sun was in 1998. So it's more than a decade ago now, but those streams hang around for a long time. Um, they think that the, the streams that we might pass through this year that will give the, the most meteors are actually going to be streams that were laid down in 1466 and 1533. So quite a long time ago. It, it's Temple Tuttle on its previous visits? On previous visits, yeah. But it's just amazing that we can just keep going through it year after year and still have... Well, we don't always pass it in the same year. place, though, because don't forget the, the Earth's orbit's not perfectly circular and these comets are not orbiting necessarily in exactly the plane of the solar system. And the trail will orbit the sun as well. Yeah, so that's why they're so variable. That's why some years they're, they're really good, some years they're not so good, and why they're quite unpredictable. And we, we reckon that this year could be a good one, more than 100, but some predictions reckon we could get over 1,000 an hour, which is unlikely, but it might happen. Or we could just get 20 an hour. It really depends on just how good the theoretical models are, and that just depends on how good the data is, and we just don't know until it happens. Well, of course, something you can predict quite well is that the UK will have cloud cover for the entire time. So More than likely. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll hope that we don't. Even if it is cloudy, of course, you can still see these things with radio telescopes. So you can have a look at the Jodrell Bank webpage and see how many radio meteors we're getting and see if you can compare it to how many optical meteors you see, if you're lucky enough to have clear skies. In fact, that's down to you, Megan, isn't it? You and Eddie Blackhurst at Jodrell, who 
managed to put that system together. That's right. Along with some help from other people. You can see nice plots showing you the current meteor activity and going backwards into the past by a few hours, so it's quite nice to see. Something I read on the Fountain of All Knowledge Wikipedia yesterday, apparently if you pass uh, a thousand meteors per hour, you're in a meteor storm rather than a meteor shower, which is quite interesting. QI points, please, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys for answering my questions about meteors, but how about the questions that you've asked? Well, here's Tim O'Brien going solo again to bring us Ask an Astronomer. The first question this month is from Margaret Feaster, and she asks, what caused the Maria or smooth seas on the moon? She also says, so many of the craters on the moon are heavily clustered. Is that random, or have the meteorites that caused them come more from one direction than another, or maybe they were all caused by a cluster of meteorites all arriving at the same time from the same direction? Well, yeah, if you ever look at the uh, the moon just with your eyes or maybe through a pair of binoculars or a telescope, you'll see these um, sort of dark so-called seas, the Maria. If you have a look at them, they do appear smoother, actually, and darker, and they lie quite a lot lower than the more rugged, brighter highland areas. These these seas, these Maria, uh, actually turn out to be mostly on the on the side of the moon that faces the Earth because... The, the moon is locked to the Earth by the tidal forces so that what, it always has one face towards us and the, and the far side faces away from us. It turns out that these, these darker, smoother seas, as they're called, um, are mostly on our side. And about, and about 16% of the surface of the moon is, is covered by these features. The fact that they're smoother, the fact that they actually, it's because they turn out to have less craters on them, um, significantly less craters than, than the highlands do. And the reason for that is because they're younger. It turns out that they're actually formed by outflows of lava. So lava's sort of seeped mostly through fissures um, in the surface of the moon rather than um, through volcanoes and sort of filled in regions of the moon. So you've got this sort of smoother sort of surface that's different as a different composition than the, than the, than the highland areas. And because it's, uh, because it's younger, um, there's less impacts, less impact craters on, on there. Most of the cratering on the moon actually happened very early in its, uh, in its history, while the solar system was still full of sort of stuff left over from the formation of the, uh, of the sun and the planets. And so the, because these things were formed rather more recently, these seas were formed rather, rather more recently, then they got a lot, lot less cratering on them. They seem to be, they, they're, they're mostly formed between uh, several billion years ago, actually, um, although some are, some are as young as just, as just one billion years or so. Um, and the thing is, they don't, they, we don't sort of see that evidence of, of any sort of lava welling up through the surface of the moon now, and that's because the geological activity of the moon has, 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 has reduced. It's basically inactive now. And one reason for that is because we think the moon was probably formed as a result of an impact of a, of a sort of Mars-sized planetesimal, which is a sort of a small, small planet, uh, very early in the history of the solar system. It crashed. We think one of these things crashed into the Earth, into the very young Earth, and sort of ripped out a chunk of the Earth's mantle, and that solidified in orbit and, and formed the Moon. So the Moon would have formed as this sort of hot thing, but then it would have gradually cooled down over time. And it turns out that because, if you think about it, the the amount of heat content in a... In, in a body, sort of roughly spherical body like, like the moon, um, would go like the volume. It would give you the, what the heat content was, and the volume goes like the cube of the, of the radius of that object. 
but the way it cools down the, the 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 heat energy will sort of pass through its surface and the surface of a of a spherical object like the moon would be proportional to the square of the radius so the heat sort of contents proportional to the cube of the radius and the and the way in which that heat is lost is through through the area which is the surface area which is proportional to the square of the radius so it turns out a large object um, where the radius is is bigger um, will retain its heat for longer so something like the moon will cool down quicker than something like the earth would um, so geological activity on the moon has, has ended whereas obviously with the with the earth we've got still got a lot of geological activity now in a very a very hot interior regarding the sort of distribution of craters that margaret asks about whether the uh, they seem to be sort of not really random and, and heavily clustered. Well, partly that's, you know, the distribution is dominated by the edge of the surface. So, so older surfaces, older regions of the moon's surface have many more craters. So that does give you a, uh, you know, some impression of clustering because it, you know, you can have a, a section of the old surface where you've got many more clusters near to a section of young surface that's got far less. You do get, um, secondary cratering around very large impacts. So if a large, uh, impact of a, of a meteorite or an asteroid crashes crashed into the moon you create these huge impact basins and, and around them around the large craters you will get a clustering of smaller craters um, but you've also got to remember that there are many more small impacts than there are large impacts um, so it's not really thought to be affected you know it's not particularly affected by the direction of the of the incoming asteroids except that the big ones will obviously have come from a certain direction and hit at a certain point and you'd have these little clusters of smaller craters around them so i hope that answers your question margaret okay the second question this month is from alistair mcpherson and he says um he was watching the clear night sky last night from some here in the uk and not only was it possible to see several satellites travelling overhead in various directions, and he often looks out for the International Space Station, but that from 7pm onwards he saw two very bright, almost delta-shaped, bright orange projectiles, the second approximately 90 seconds behind the first, and the trajectory from, was from the southwest to the northeast. And being an ex-pilot, he, uh, he knew that these weren't aircraft, but could they have been the Ares rocket that was launched by NASA uh, the day before. He was actually telling me he'd seen this on the at the end of October. Could we confirm this for him? So, of course, it turns out that that Ares 1X rocket that was the test rocket for um, um, going back to going back to the moon, if that ever if that ever happens, it turns out that actually only got to an altitude of about 30 miles or so. Uh, and it only travelled downrange about 150 miles. So we certainly, you know, it certainly wouldn't have been that that you could have seen from from the UK. Uh, and in fact, I suspect that this is another case of the uh, very common phenomenon of these um, Chinese lanterns, these paper hot air balloons powered by candles. It certainly sounds like it. Bright orange um, projectiles, one, one following on from the other and sort of drifting across the sky. So, so I'm afraid that's probably what it was rather than the Ares rocket. Question here from Jeffrey Smith, who wrote in saying, Here in Oregon, in the USA, we watched some stars the other Friday evening, um, a small group of about half a dozen in the north, close to the horizon. Then they watched them grow brighter for a few moments, then return to normal visibility, and then do so repeatedly, about sort of 9 p.m. in the evening, local time. And he says, despite it being a very clear night way out in the rural part of the state with no city light, must, that's, that's lovely, nearest town is La Grande, hope that's how you pronounce it, 
Bet you have a lovely night sky there. They thought it might be a cloud, but there were no clouds doing this to any of the stars elsewhere in the sky. Had we ever seen anything like that? Can stars pulse before the naked eye? I actually wrote back to uh, Jeffrey and said that sounded very strange and uh, suggested that it had been one star that appeared and disappeared and only did it once. I'd have suggested it might have been an iridium flare, which is a reflection from, from an orbiting satellite. But there wouldn't be half a dozen of them in the same region, and nor would that happen repeatedly. I sort of guessed that it might be something to do with the the transparency of the atmosphere changing. You know, it's what we call seeing, um, and it's basically what causes stars to twinkle. And maybe there was some sort of uh, localized effect in that direction. And actually, Jeffrey wrote back and, and pointed out that he thinks he'd worked out what it was, and it's something that I've not really tried myself. But he says. Um, Soon after that, they they had another clear night, and they went went back outside and and figured out what it probably was. And the clue was, he basically thinks it's to do with averted vision. Turns out that when you're looking at the night sky, you can get a a clearer view. You'll see fainter objects by just looking to the side of the direction in which you really want to look. So if you're trying to see a very faint star, don't sort of stir directly at it, but just try to look just off to one side. It takes a little bit of practice, and you'll actually be able to see fainter fainter stars and the reason is because on your retina where you know the part of your eye that that uh, detects the light that enters in through the pupil you've actually got um things called rods and cones these are the these are the structures in your eye that are actually sensitive to light and it turns out that um, the cones are the colour-sensitive um, structures that are actually a bit less sensitive to light, and they're clustered in the region where the light would arrive at the back of your retina if you stir sort of straight ahead. But surrounding that, you've got the rods, which are less colour-sensitive, so you, you really only see in black and white with the you know with levels of grey, basically, with the rods. But they're, they're rather more sensitive to light. So you'll have noticed that if you go in a, in a dark room uh, let your eyes get used to the light. You do tend to see in shades of grey rather than in colour, and you are actually using the rods in that case. So the rods are sort of away from the sort of central direction in which you're looking. So if you move your eyes just off to the side, if you like, look just off to the side of what you're wanting to to see a faint object, you'll end up you'll be using the rods. You'll have you won't have any colour vision, but you will see fainter things. And basically, what what Jeffrey's suggesting is that looking at a small area of the night sky with with half a dozen stars or so which is what he was doing then you can basically as your eyes sort of move around over that region you're actually repeatedly sort of using the rod and cone area of your eye and so the brightness the apparent brightness of these stars sort of goes up and down so it's quite quite an interesting thing and probably uh, be interested to hear if anybody else has uh, tried this out or spotted this spotted this effect okay question here from james flynn Hi, he says, I'd like to have some tips on how to find the planets. As I live in a town, is it possible to observe the planets because houses are surrounding his back garden? Well, James, at the moment, um, Jupiter is uh, is in the southern evening sky. So if you get a clear sky, which is very rare at the moment in the, <laughs> here in Manchester, um, but when we get a clear sky, Jupiter is basically the brightest object in the sky in in the sort of southern evening sky. It's quite low down. It'll it'll be it'll be the most obvious thing in that direction. You can't miss it. Very bright star-like object, but low down. It's maybe. 20 degrees above the horizon so if you're trying to imagine what what 20 degrees is like that's something like if you got a 12 inch ruler and sort of held that out at arm's length it's sort of the length of that 12 inch ruler above the horizon something like that maybe two hand spans um, uh, above the horizon 
So have a look at, see, spot, spot Jupiter, and then if you can get a hold of a pair of binoculars and you can sort of steady yourself, then have a look at Jupiter through binoculars. You should be able to see um, the four brightest moons of Jupiter, the Galilean satellites that Galileo himself saw with a telescope 400 years ago. And, of course, beautiful through a small telescope where you might even get a chance to see the cloud bands if you've got good observing conditions. So it sort of depends whether you can, if the houses are surrounding your back garden, it'll just depend whether Jupiter's getting up above the above the rooftops of those houses. But that should give you an idea of, of how, high it, how high it is. Um, Venus, Mars and Saturn are all around at the moment, but they're best seen before dawn. So you'd have to, you'll have to get up early to, uh, to spot those right now. In terms of finding out exactly where those are from, from, from one month to another, you could try downloading Stellarium, which we've mentioned a few times on, on, on the Jodcast. Um, run it on your computer. It'll show you what's up in the sky at any time from any location on the Earth. You could, of course, listen to Ian Morrison's Night Sky program here on the Jodcast or look at the web pages he writes on the Night Sky each month or get hold of one of the monthly astronomy magazines like Astronomy Now, Sky at Night magazine, or Sky and Telescope, who all uh, have sections which tell you what's visible, what's up and around each month. Okay, the final question for this month is from Philip LaRiche, who asks, it's well known that the motion of three or more bodies is, in the general case, is chaotic, and that the stability of the solar system in the long term is not guaranteed. So how is it then that globular clusters containing millions of closely packed stars appear to be so very smooth and apparently well-behaved. Why are they not continually hurtling, hurling stars into the intermediate mass black hole, which is believed may lie at the centre, causing bursts of X-rays and gamma rays, whilst ejecting other stars from the cluster in a kind of evaporation? So, yeah, you're right. You can Interactions between objects can indeed sort of fling things around, both both in our solar system where, where planets sort of might move in their orbits or small objects might be sort of ejected from the solar system or caused to sort of crash crash down into the sun and in the case of a globular cluster those sorts of processes can happen now the, the, what will tell you whether that's going to happen or not is if you want a cluster to be stable so for the so for the stars to sort of not leave the cluster then it means that the their average speed must be less than the escape speed. So, you know, you, just like if you had a, had an object in your hand and you wanted to throw it, throw it up here on the Earth, you'd have to throw it pretty fast for it to escape the Earth's gravity. Well, you want these stars to be moving slower than this escape speed and then they're going to be bound to the cluster. They're sort of tied to the cluster. The cluster is, 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 is gravitationally bound together. The stars will just orbit, um, around the center of the cluster. Now, it turns out that the, these globular clusters are actually, in general, very stable because they're, they're highly compact systems. These are, these are beautiful things. If you ever had a look at them in the, uh, through a telescope or through binoculars, they're, they're these dense, uh, centrally condensed clusters of something like a million stars, very high density of stars in these clusters. But because they're so compact and so there's so many stars in such a close volume, the, the force of the sort of gravitational strength is, is quite strong. So they are actually quite in general terms, quite stable. Now, of course, that doesn't mean to say they don't eject any stars um, because there will be some stars that have speeds, that move around with speeds much higher than the average, and it's certainly possible for for those to to be flung out of the 
uh, out of the cluster. And in, indeed, in the dense core of the cluster, you might expect that stars occasionally collide and, and coalesce. And it does seem that there's evidence that there are quite large black holes at the centre of some of these globular clusters. There's been um, several, we think. There's evidence that several clusters have, have these so-called intermediate black holes at their cores. These were something like a few tens of thousands the mass of the sun, so 20,000, 30,000 solar masses, whereas so-called stellar mass black holes, the one we find in binary star systems, are maybe just a few times the mass of the sun. These are, these are tens of thousands. And the ones at the heart of galaxies, like the heart of the Milky Way or other galaxies, can be millions or, or even billions of times the, the mass of the sun. So... In this case, yep, um, very dense clusters do indeed hurl stars around at the core. and it, Some of them may even have ejected any black holes that have formed at their cores. It's work in progress. We don't really fully understand how these things have evolved. And certainly if we start to understand how these intermediate black holes grow at the centre of globular clusters, it will give us some clues as to how the, the more massive black holes um, may have formed at the centre of galaxies like the Milky Way. So, yep. Few stars do escape in the outer parts of the cluster, um, but the rates at which they escape are so slow that, in fact, the globular cluster overall can easily last for for billions of years. Okay, that's that's all the questions for this month. Um, so, if you've got any more questions, get in touch in the usual manner, and we'll do our best to to answer them for you. Thanks, Tim. Now, your feedback from last time seems to like Tim going on his own. But what else have we got in our email bag, Stuart? Well, in the email, mostly people have been asking for tickets for Jodcast Live. We've, as we alluded to earlier, we've given away all 50 tickets now. Um, we do have a, a small waiting list, so if you are down to come to Jodcast Live and can no longer make it, please let us know, because there are people who would like your place. Over on Twitter, The Astronomist gave us a shout-out, thanks for that, saying that uh, the Jodcast is a powerful resource, so powerful that if you follow it regularly, you'll be probably more broadly aware of astronomy news than most astronomers. And we made Elias Jordan very happy for mentioning his name in the November edition. So here we'll mention it in the November extra again. Over on the forum, we got feedback from Pucker, Stella and Joda the Oak. But on the forum and on Facebook, it seems that everyone's just so excited about Jogcast Live, they haven't really given us much feedback from last time. So hopefully at Jogcast Live, you can give us your feedback on this show. Live feedback. Live feedback. Otherwise, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. And we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. So that brings us to the end of this edition of the Jodcast. Thanks to Rick Purley for the interview and to Chris for sorting us out with all of our cables getting ready for Jodcast Live. So until next time, when we see you in person, Jod on. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. See you later. Bye.